As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. This story starts when Andres Martel had just turned 13. Like most kids that age, Andres felt a bit restless. He wanted some excitement, the kind that isn't easy to come by in a sleepy neighborhood deep within the San Francisco suburbs. Most teenagers in his position might take up skateboarding or just go set off some fireworks in a parking lot. But Andres discovered he wanted more than just a rush of adrenaline. He wanted a new identity, one that was bold and tough and unexpected. (laughs) I wanted to be a Marine when I grew up. I grew up in the Bay Area, so I was a Great town, Burlingame, 20 minutes south of San Francisco, half hour, 40 minute drive from UC Berkeley. Perhaps it was a way to rebel. My mom was a Buddhist and my father was a bit of a bohemian. He was a photographer and and before that a musician. How do you rebel against your Buddhist mother and bohemian father perhaps? And I think it's less about rebelling and I think it's more about creating a unique identity for yourself. I suffered terribly with learning disabilities as an adolescent, specifically ADHD and dyslexia. wasn't medicated as a child. The way that I coped with it was to create my own path. Paths that were laid in front of me were almost by default not the way that I was going to go. And maybe that's my personality or, or maybe that has to do with my brain chemistry. And this was an identity that I, I didn't associate with some of the less desirable things that come from, from military conflict and war. It was an identity that I associated with as more of an archetype of a protector. Once there were a few proud men, men of adventure, men of courage, men who knew the meaning of honor. There still are the few, the proud, the Marines. It really just embodied everything that I wanted, just basically the service to society, practically capable, resilient human being, that type of thing. It just seemed like an archetypical character. Yeah, I chased the recruiter around my high school for about three years until I was old enough for him to speak with me basically developed a a scheme where I could graduate early and go to boot camp during my senior year. I was just really keen to get started. So yeah, I actually came back and and graduated in my my dress blues uniform, uh, which was pretty, pretty memorable for me. Andres joined the Marine Corps when he was just 17. So he needed his mom to sign off on his paperwork. She agreed under the condition that he pursue his bachelor's degree part-time during his service. He said, sure. But the world had other ideas. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. The risk of inaction are far greater than the risk of action. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. The deployment was originally without an end date. 
So we were sent over in February and basically we were told that you can start asking when you might be coming back at around Thanksgiving, I think they said. That deployment was probably one of the most unique deployments out of the entire uh, Middle East campaign in our recent generation because it was an invasion of a country. And that is something that the U.S. military is is incredibly good at. It's, It's something that the U.S. military is designed to do. What becomes a little bit harder is nation building, instilling democracy, rooting out ideological actors. That is a, a much lar- lo- longer investment. Heady stuff, and Andreas, barely out of high school, was in the thick of it. He makes clear that he worked as an avionics technician in the Marine Corps, so he wasn't on the ground, as it were, engaged in small arms combat. But still, his memories of war ripple with tension. The two biggest stresses for me was equipment readiness, making sure that the weapon systems that I was responsible for on the F-18s were operational and accurate was everything to me because I heard on the radio people calling for that equipment when they needed it. And the other form of stress was the SCUD alerts. So on my compound, when the invasion started, Saddam Hussein started shooting whatever he had towards the invading American forces. And some of those were long-range SCUD missiles. Or they weren't the most accurate weapon systems. And so when they went into the air anywhere, anywhere near our position, the sirens would go off on our base and everyone would go underground. Chemical weapons were a threat at the time, so gas masks on, full chemical suits, underground, just listening to the sirens and waiting for impact, quite frankly. And that was a helpless feeling. You train to act. You train to respond to situations and this is something where there is no response. You are sitting, hearing yourself breathe through a gas mask, through all of everyone in your unit breathing through their gas mask, everyone's silent, just listening. Are the sirens still on? Do I hear any explosions anywhere? Thankfully, the missiles never hit too close. Andres came back to the United States in one piece. He remembers the Marine Corps band playing when he got off the plane. In the end, he even managed to get his bachelor's degree just as he'd promised his mom. But still, something didn't feel right. The part that I wasn't expecting was the U.S. Marine Corps is not just an organization, it's also a tool. And a hammer is not inherently bad. A hammer to build a house is is a phenomenal tool. A hammer to tear down a house. Something else. After that deployment, we came home to, if you want to timestamp it, the mission accomplished photo op when George Bush landed on the aircraft carrier and there's a big mission accomplished banner. That was a few weeks before I came home, maybe a month before I came home. It felt like I had lived up to the mission. It, it, felt up, it felt like I had trained for something, was called on to do that thing, and did it. 
where it started to turn was I was speaking with our ops people. And when we came back, there was one deployment scheduled after us. And that was it. And then the years uh, went on and deployments kept getting tacked on. And that's when um, it started to feel like the tool had been misused. And it started to feel like making a career in the Marine Corps, it was less of a concern for my physical safety and more of a concern for my legacy. For a guy like Andres, for whom identity is so deeply important, you can imagine how uncomfortable a transition this was. For years, he'd woken up with a clear sense of purpose. Now, for the first time, he was questioning it. He found himself spending late nights on the phone with his father. He sent me cases of wine as care packages. I would get on the phone and we would drink the same wine and talk. He was really keen on me coming out, doing different things, and I think he just missed me. One evening, I remember distinctly, I was you know, just drinking a glass of wine, talking to my father, and I told him that I don't know what I want to do next, but I want to learn more about wine and I want to keep traveling. And he told me that's all you need to know. Somehow that evolved into this frame that entrepreneurship would be the next great hurdle, the next identity I would find for myself, the next hill I would climb. So there it was, a window into a new identity from, interestingly enough, the same man against whom he'd sought to rebel when he joined the Marine Corps in the first place, and a man uniquely well-equipped to navigate big changes. He had a number of careers in his life. The way that he tells the story, he grew up in New York City, an orphan at 16, running gambling houses for the mob. This was his background, and then at some point in like the 1960s, he drove across the U.S. in a VW Bug, to get into the music scene in LA. And then somehow the music scene brought him up to Northern California where he got into photography. And basically I grew up in the back of a photography studio, literally in a commercial space in the back of a photography studio. And there was a fire in the studio on a Christmas Eve. I was too, I'm too young to know the exact year, but it's probably, I said it was like late 80s. And this long story short, the studio went away. Like his equipment and negatives. And and so my father started driving a taxi. He was a very gregarious, outgoing individual. He came up with the idea uh, of starting a company called San Francisco Photographic and Historical Tours and purchased a um, luxury vehicle to do this. And so, what he offered was uh, a scenic tour of San Francisco by a professional photographer. And at the end of the tour, you could purchase the pictures that he took of you. So, he would. this was back in the days of film. And he would develop the film and send them the photos. And that was part of the, the service. And he was very curious. So, he was a history wonk. And that worked really well. Andres knew he had in his father an extraordinary asset. 
And as he sat on those late night phone calls, scheming, he figured he could leverage his dad's experience in California's hospitality sector. Ultimately, it manifested as a company called Vin Ambassador. And that firm that I operated went on to operate for over a decade, provided tours, travel and events in wine destinations. I started the firm with the contacts that my dad had made through the wine that he purchased with the intention of sending to me. And I reached out to luxury hotels in San Francisco initially, letting them know that I can show their guests amazing wineries and get them intimate experiences with winemakers and owners, take them to places that don't have tasting rooms, that have great kitchens and homes next to the vineyards. And I didn't realize then, this was in 2006, I didn't realize then how advanced that value proposition was, but they did. And they gave me a shot. Through that process, I spent my working hours in vineyards, in, in caves, sitting around tables with winemakers because my job was to bring guests there. And I was part of that experience. And I quickly found out that it was important for me to know, really know, not just the people and not just to have access, but to really know about wine because people, people had questions and I never wanted to say that I didn't know. I started studying wine formally with the Corps de Master Sommeliers and a couple of years after starting the company was certified as a, as a sommelier. Andres was the ideas guy, the dreamer, but Vin Ambassador worked because every last detail of customer experience was a point of pride. And that culture was dictated in large part by Andres's dad. For the first few years, it was very much a father and son operation. He would work for me. He was moonlighting in my company, which was really cool. He was just incredible. Anytime guests went out with him, let me just put it this way. 10 years into running the company, I had people calling me asking for my dad. And the direction that I went was really around specialty knowledge around wine. Establishing this new space, differentiating my company from, from transportation companies, right? At the time, there weren't specialty wine tour companies, wine tour hosts. One of the things that I did was get my sommelier certification. And one of the things that I also did was hire sommeliers to lead tours. So much the way that he had San Francisco photographic and historical tours, which was history and photography. My interest was wine destinations and real rigorous wine knowledge. Business boomed. Andres had every reason in the world to feel really good. Pardon the cliche, but he was living the American dream. He had served his country honorably, and now he was crushing it in the private sector. But as Andres leaned deeper into Vin Ambassador, he started to feel uneasy. I was explaining my vision to my staff for where I wanted the company to go and why what they were doing was so important and wasn't able to explain how we were going to get there. When I had clients telling me that I had an amazing business model, giving me all kinds of compliments, asking me what I wanted to do with this company and having them ask me, how much money do you need? 
I didn't know. I didn't have a sense of what a reasonable figure would look like. I didn't know how to think in these terms, right? Like I really knew service and I knew how to make a small business operate no matter what. When I met an accountant, I didn't know if they knew more than me or not. It was happening again. Andres had seized on a goal and leaned so far into it that it became an identity. Then he realized the life, the identity he'd created maybe wasn't as great as he'd hoped. It was time for a change. I didn't have the, the capital or the confidence to make really big moves to, to scale the company. And the way that I thought I would achieve that was formal education. I think that's how I ultimately decided that business school was the way to come. So he pressed pause on Vin Ambassador and he got ready for his first semester of school. He was optimistic he had already survived Scud missiles and built a business up from nothing. How hard could Haas be? When I got to Haas, I realized it was darn hard, but I loved everything about it and I wanted to chase down every bit of knowledge. I started to see a lot of other doors being opened and not just doors for me to walk through, we'll call it doors for me to look into. There was incredible, there was conversations happening all over campus, things around virtual reality, augmented reality, internet of things, future of mobility. So we're talking about autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, big ideas around social justice and environmental sustainability. And these are topics that I didn't want to have a surface level understanding about. And I found myself spending a lot of time on campus. I found myself spending a lot of time with classmates. Uh, and I found myself studying uh, a lot because I wanted to excel in this. This is more than a few business tips for, for my small business. This became an identity. I wanted to be an exceptional Berkeley leader. An identity, one that might finally stick. During his time at Haas, Andres had the opportunity to travel to Barcelona and to Hong Kong. While he was there, he became increasingly fascinated with the built environment, real estate, infrastructure, urban planning. And he figured he could leverage that new curiosity within his business. Hotels and restaurants exist in the built environment. That's part of the value chain. And it's so integral into creating an experience, how those buildings are designed, the history of the buildings, things like adaptive reuse were really interesting to me. So creating hotels and restaurants out of old train stations or mills or farmhouses was fascinating to me. I think those types of experiences, not only are they charming, uh, but they send a great message that you don't have to, not everything has to be new. There's value in in, in things that had a context before you, you got there. Andres felt like his brain was firing at full capacity. He had a plan. He had a direction. And then, again, everything changed. When COVID hit and everything was locked down, offices were locked down, this was the onset of a major change of how cities would be designed, how people would interact, where people would live, what people would value. And so overnight you have 
central urban cores that are completely hollowed out and you have some of the most expensive real estate in the city that is rendered worthless. And so the future of cities became a really interesting question to me. But I also have to say, and whether this goes into, you know, the, the, the final cut or not, I lost my father when I was on exchange in Hong Kong. That was, you know, not even then did I decide to do a hard pause on Vin Ambassador, but that was another signpost along the way that it might be a time to, to try something else for a little while. So he altered course. Once he finished up his work at Haas, he walked down the street and enrolled at Berkeley's College of Environmental Design. There's a, a one-year program, it's called the MRED Plus D program, uh, Master of Real Estate Development Plus Design, had my name all over it. And that I felt would be a really great opportunity to really understand what it takes to influence the built environment. So in that program, you understand how real estate development sits between architecture, construction, finance, and government planning with the intention of creating livable cities that people not only want to pay rent in, but people want to go. This goes without saying, but as Andres immersed himself deeper into his new course of study, Vin Ambassador faded further and further in the rearview mirror. With my father passing and with COVID really stopping travel and the opportunity to make money in the travel and hospitality industry, that basically said, you know what, it's time. You've positioned yourself to do something else. And just like your time at Haas, that foundation will allow you to come back to the world of wine when and if you're ready. The pivot that I've made now will also allow me to do that. Throughout these transitional years, there was a conflict around intrinsic and extrinsic uh, rewards. I guess as much as I was learning, as much as I was gaining the tools to execute this vision, I was also recognizing that my intrinsic love of wine and the connection that it gave me to my father and now memories of my father and where I come from, when it's tied to extrinsic rewards of monetary gain, and I don't just mean, you know, riches, I just literally your, your job, it can actually undermine the love that you have for something. You can look at a, a painter who loves to paint and someone comes along and says, paint this thing for me. And all of a sudden they, they spend their days not painting what they love to do, but painting what they're paid to paint. And at the end of the day, they probably don't feel like painting what they love painting because they've they spent their whole day painting what someone else wanted them to paint. I'm working for a nonprofit, which is something that I was not expecting to say when I came to Haas as an entrepreneur or even when I was looking around at potential pivots. But this is a really unique nonprofit. It's called Connected Places Catapult. It is the accelerator for a future of mobility and smart cities in the UK. Because it's publicly funded, it has the capacity to not just run startup accelerators, but to do research and to do research that potentially 
affects policy and that can really create a path for not just any startups but startups that have public good associated with them to, to flourish and my job as the design futures team lead and currently designing the strategy is to understand what those paths look like and to create uh, clear visions of future scenarios that we all want to work towards.